Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast, Episode Number Seventy Five, Benjamin Bloom, Going Ballistic. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host Ed Chang from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Benjamin Bloom. Benjamin is professor of law at the University of California, Hastings College of Law. He teaches criminal law and evidence, and as a legal historian, his scholarship focuses on the relationship between law and colonialism during the 19th and 20th centuries. Our podcast today features Benjamin's new article, Going Ballistic, the Forgotten Origins of Forensic Weapon Identification, 1919 through 1924. The article is part of Benjamin's new book project, which is entitled Forensic Culture in the Age of Empire. In Going Ballistic, Benjamin chronicles the birth of modern ballistics identification, which occurred in Egypt in the early 1920s under British rule. My discussion with Benjamin takes us on a historical journey. It examines the relationship between forensics and colonialism, and explores other stories that will be part of his fascinating book project on the history of forensic science. Benjamin, delighted to have you on Excited Utterance. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Your article is, of course, about the origins of modern firearm identification, specifically in Egypt in the 1920s. Can you tell us a little more about that origin story? What led to the development of ballistics analysis in that context? Okay, so this is a period of significant political turmoil. Following World War I, there were high hopes in Egypt that Egypt would be granted independence. And the request to send a delegation to the Paris uh, Peace Conference was rejected. And that resulted in the 1919 Egyptian Popular Revolution. And as part of that revolution, Egyptian nationalists started assassinating British officials. And even though these assassinations were happening often in broad daylight in crowded parts of Cairo, the British found it nearly impossible to find any eyewitnesses who were willing to cooperate and to identify who the assassins were. And so in the absence of this ability to rely on eyewitness identification, they developed firearm identification in order to try and collect physical evidence, which would allow them to no longer rely on the mediation of eyewitnesses and would relieve them of this need to trust the local population when trying to solve crimes. And so the story that I tell in the article is a story that stretches over a period of about five years from 1919 to 1924. And it culminates with the assassination of the commander-in-chief of the Egyptian army, Sir Lee Stack, which is really the first case in history in which a forensic firearm identification is able to pinpoint a particular firearm, not just a type of firearm, but to pinpoint a particular Colt that was used in the assassination. And that later becomes uh, the precedent for not only firearm identification in Egypt, but in Britain as well, and later on in the United States. 
Now, you note that 1920s Egypt wasn't the first time that someone tried to match a bullet to a weapon or to use bullets to discern evidence narrowing down a list of suspects. In fact, it occurred almost about a century earlier. Tell us more about that story. Okay, so this was a story in 1835 where there was a burglary in a home in Southampton. And Henry Goddard, who was a a Bow Street runner, which was kind of a detective service that predated Scotland Yard, was summoned to the scene. And one of the things that he noticed about the slug was that it had a slight imperfection. And he examined the home butler's mold for creating the bullet and was able to identify that the butler's mold had an identical imperfection, which suggested that it was perhaps cliche. It was the butler who did it. Now, the thing about that identification was that this was an era before mass production of of weapons, an era in which every gun owner had a mold through which they could create the bullets that would fit their particular weapon. So during that period, at least for a small window of time, it was possible to identify and to tie a particular bullet found at a crime scene to a particular weapon. But this changed very quickly in 1836, only a year after Henry Goddard came up with this method when Samuel Colt started mass-producing weapons in the United States. And once weapons were mass-produced and once bullets were mass-produced, it became much more difficult to pinpoint a particular weapon. What was possible was to identify what kind of weapon had been used, whether this was a Colt or a Wesson or any other uh, weapon producer. And this was usually done based on the number of grooves and their direction, which suggested the rifling marks, which were different between even mass-produced weapons. But to identify and pinpoint a particular mass-produced weapon was something that was not thought possible. And when we look back in time, it's not entirely intuitive that a mass-produced weapon would produce distinctive marks or distinctive enough marks to be able to identify exactly which weapon had been used. So between 1835, this case in England that you're talking about with the custom or manually made bullets, and 1920s Egypt, you're saying that effectively what was going on was some kind of rough cut determination of whether or not this gun could have been used in the crime, but there was no individualization. And so the real turning point about the Egyptian episode that you're pointing to is that that's where we started to get individualization again. That's right. Individualization of of a mass-produced weapon. And what was the theory that you could actually find individual characteristics in a mass-produced weapon? Because if you think about it, the whole point about mass production is standardization, and so everything should be very similar. Yes, and part of the point is that it is meant to be identical and, when it comes to weapons, interchangeable. So, And one of the revolutions of mass productions of weapons is that each of the components of, of a weapon can be mass-produced, and then they can be interchangeable between weapons in a way that if uh, they get worn out, they can be swapped out. 
the theory behind this, and this is something that Goddard later articulates, is that even God is unable to produce two items or two individuals that are precisely the same. And that's kind of the underlying theory, that even things that seem to us to be absolutely identical are not entirely identical in every detail. And this becomes more pronounced over time with where, but the imperfections, even of a mass-produced weapon, are something that individualize it and allow it to be identified, even though it is presumably almost identical. So... One of the things that struck me about the story was that early proponents of bullet identification in this Egyptian period, particularly Alfred Lucas, who you effectively identify as one of the fathers of modern ballistics identification, he was, at least my impression was, he was very careful and tentative. So, for example, he would look at bullets and say that the bullets were very unusual and they were similar, but he also said that they weren't sufficiently alike to say that they were fired from the same gun. And you know, to put it in more modern terms, I kind of view this as that Lucas understood both interweapon variability and intraweapon variability, that no two bullets fired from the same gun are going to be exactly the same, so there's some statistical variation there. And even if you have mass-produced weapons, yes, there is variability between those two. And the real question is, when do you attribute one variability to just the way that a bullet came out of that barrel on that particular day versus that it came out of a different barrel? So he kind of understood all this. He, you know, wasn't really overselling. Do you get that sense as well, or am I misreading it? No, I think that is a correct reading. And this is one of the historical lessons I think that we can draw from the Egyptian origins of forensic firearm identification in that. And Alfred Lucas is still considered one of the um, founding fathers of forensic chemistry and was very cautious in the conclusions that he drew not only when it came to uh, firearm identification, but more generally. And he was observing and trying to collect data points about the assassinations that were happening in Egypt during the 1920s and trying to draw some inferences and trying to identify at least the kind of weapon that had been used. But he was very cautious about the ability to pinpoint a mass-produced weapon. He suggested in a 1923 article that in some cases where a mass-produced weapon is mishandled and not maintained properly, it may have what he calls secondary rifling marks that would perhaps allow to identify a particular weapon. But he's very cautious about the possibility of doing this very broadly. He suggests that maybe in some instances this can be done. And he's really he's meticulous in the details that he collects. And when he steps down in 1923 to pursue a a career in archaeology and Egyptology, the state of the field is such that the general suggestion is that one can identify the type of weapon used, but not pinpoint a particular mass-produced weapon. This changes when his successor, Sidney Smith, enters the field, and with the assassination of Sir Lee Stack. And Sidney Smith is kind of far 
looser with the way in which he uses forensic ballistics. And I think, again, this is a cautionary tale about how forensic science, which is which, even forensic sciences that begin very cautiously and meticulously are sometimes taken on out of expediency or because of a particular expert who's willing to stake far bolder claims that aren't grounded in the data. Sidney Smith is willing to make a much bolder claim that he can identify and he can pinpoint a particular weapon. And with the murder of the Sirdar, perhaps there were some distinctive features of the weapon used in that assassination. But he later publishes an article in 1926 in the British Journal of Medicine in which he stakes a much bolder claim that any mass-produced weapon has distinctive features that can be conclusively identified. And in that, he blurs the caution that Alfred Lucas uh, suggested in, in the earlier work. I find it amazing that you only need, it's not even one generation. It's that Lucas retires within several years of developing this field, and immediately his successor jumps to the overclaiming or the the much bolder claim. Why do you think that is? I mean, if we think about forensics more generally, and this is your broader point, this happens almost all the time. Is it because those that follow know just enough to be dangerous? This is you know, usually what happens with technology is that the people who develop it are very circumspect and tentative, and then the people who glom onto it later, they just run with it. So that's one possibility. Is it that there are incentives in this context that push people in this direction? So maybe prosecutors really want more certainty so that they can get a uh, easier result. And therefore, only the people who oversell are the ones that tend to get put on the stand. I mean, is it a combination of these factors? Are there other factors that are leading to this? So I think the Sidney Smith story is kind of the perfect storm in terms of a few components and a few factors that coalesce in 1924 Egypt to create this reality. So first of all, we have a political crisis. We have the assassination of a high-ranking British official that throws Anglo-Egyptian relations into, into crisis and a dire need to find exactly who did this because who did this might determine the fate of international affairs. So, and that's one component. So there's significant pressure placed on the, on the police and on the forensic lab in Cairo to find exactly who the culprit was. So that's one component, so this, this component of necessity. Another aspect of the necessity is that there's no other evidence and there are no eyewitnesses, there's no one else to turn to. And so these bullets found at the crime scene are pretty much the only evidence that can be relied upon. Now, this kind of coalesces with another component, which is the retirement of Alfred Lucas, the, as you point out, the more cautious, circumspect, forensic expert who developed the field and knew precisely what its limitations were, and his replacement by someone who more generally seemed to have been a wonderful expert witness and performer and was willing to deliver to the colonial government whatever it is that they needed. 
and was willing to exaggerate the um, scientific foundations of his of his conclusions and was willing to make that leap forward. And one of the things that is striking in this story is that this leap happens within a year. So Alfred Lucas retires in 1923, is replaced by Sidney Smith, and this assassination takes takes place at the end of 1924, and by 1925, he's already testifying. So it's not, as you point out, this isn't a generation, this isn't even a number of years, this is within a few months that this leap forward in forensic uh, firearm identification is made. And once it's made, it's kind of, it's taken on by other experts around the world who run with it and are able to point to the Egyptian precedent and to this article in a very respectable medical journal that claims that this is completely valid scientifically. Let me shift gears a little bit and ask you some broader questions about the paper and the book project that it's a part of. First, a unifying theme in, I think, your book is the fact that many forensic techniques were developed or advanced under British colonialism. You note that it was the colonial environment, at least with regard to this ballistics analysis, that played a pretty key role in the story. What is it about colonialism that helped to give rise to these forensic techniques? So in the book, I divide the factors into three main groups. And the one that perhaps is most prominent in the story of ballistics is the story of necessity. When, when I speak of necessity, I've touched on a couple of the themes. One of them is this mutual distrust between colonizer and colonized. So the fact that the colonial government is unable to obtain local eyewitnesses who are willing to collaborate, but to broaden the perspective on that, even in situations where the local population is willing to cooperate with colonial authorities, they're often distrusted in terms of the testimony that they offer. And so the idea of forensic science provides the colonial government with unmediated access to evidence that doesn't require any kind of reliance on the local population. Uh, so that's one prong of the necessity. There are a few other prongs that I tease out in the greater book project, one of which is the difficulty of cross-racial identification. And this is something that the British were perplexed by throughout the empire and is very much the origin story behind fingerprinting, the British inability to distinguish between people in India and the fear that people were committing mostly pension fraud, but fraud more generally and impersonating other people. And so the fingerprint allowed them to identify and conclusively identify that a particular individual was who they claimed to be. Another challenge, another necessity that the British confront in the empire is the distinctiveness of colonial crime. And there's this trope, something that um, Sidney Smith articulates explicitly, that whereas in Britain and in Europe more generally, criminals, even the most ruthless of criminals, tend to act rationally and tend to commit crimes in order to acquire wealth or satisfy desires that are comprehensible to the police. When it comes to the empire, the motives that drive people to commit crimes remain completely opaque. 
Um, people tend to commit crimes such as animal maiming or uh, destruction of crop, things that result in no benefits to the criminal. And they tend to do this out of either an exaggerated uh, sense of honor or out of excessive vindictiveness. And because there is this inability to understand what people's motives are when committing crime, the understanding of trace evidence becomes much more central. And so those are a few of the necessities. And forensic science also offers this semblance of objectivity and precision that generates, or at least to the colonial mind, generates some kind of a legitimacy to colonial rule and to the colonial legal system. Now, another component or another organizing concept around the development of forensics in the colonies is opportunity and the ability of the colonial governments to experiment with novel forensic methods for which they would probably get considerable pushback if they were to experiment with them at home. And two prime examples of that are fingerprinting, which uh, the British used in India for decades before trying to introduce it at home. And in 1900, when they considered introducing fingerprinting at home, they decided that the state of the field was not yet advanced enough to introduce in Britain itself, but they continued to experiment with it in South Africa, primarily on, on the non-white population. Another example of this would be dog tracking, which again was something that the British considered introducing during the Jack the Ripper murders in the 1880s, late 1880s, but um, ultimately concluded that dog tracking is was something that was done in hunting, that was done in order to track down animals and could not be used even to track down someone like Jack the Ripper. Now, meanwhile, they are using the same method of dog tracking in South Africa and later in Palestine and in India and in Kenya. And it's only in the 1950s that the British create a canine unit in Britain itself. But this is after decades that they had been tracking criminals in the colonies using dogs. And furthermore, and the first time that such evidence was deemed admissible in a court in Britain was in the 1990s. And people had been sent to their death in the colonies based solely on two dogs corroborating each other's identification of a criminal. So that's in terms of, of opportunity. Fascinating stuff. I can see a lot of different places where your observations can go. Final question for you. What's next uh, after this piece? I assume it's more work on your book project. Where will the project take you next? So yeah, I do still have my work cut out for me in terms of the book. And the book is composed of case studies. So the, and the ballistics and tool marking identification is, is one of the case studies. Another one that I just spoke about is the dog tracking and footprinting, which later develops into shoe mark identification. And again, this theme of taking something that is individualized and translating it into a mass-produced item. Handwriting and identification and question documents is another one of, of the chapters. There's a chapter on hair and fabric analysis and the use of x-rays to determine chronological age which is, again, something that was developed for archaeological purposes and later translated into forensic uses. So, And this is a project that is kind of world-spanning and something that I've dug through the archives from Sri Lanka to South Africa and Kenya in order to bring together 
the different parts of the empire and what exactly the British are developing in different parts of the empire and and the purposes for which they develop these forensic sciences. And I'm hoping to conclude the book project by next year, by 2020, and hopefully it'll be on the shelves soon thereafter and at some point in uh, 2021. So in the meantime, there's one article that was published in the Law and History Review that is a history of, of dog tracking, but the other chapters are still very much in the works. And after this book project, I hope to turn my attention to the history of forensic science in America and see where that story overlaps and perhaps complements the uh, colonial British history of forensic science. Well, Benjamin, I certainly look forward to the book coming out. That will be a uh, fascinating read. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us about the early days of ballistics identification and forensic science more generally. Great having you on the show. Thank you very much, Ed. It was my pleasure. There's so much to like in Benjamin's article on the origins of ballistics analysis and his broader project on the history of forensic science. Here, I think, are two highlights. First, as we discuss in the podcast, the case of ballistics is basically a cautionary tale for forensic methods. You have Alfred Lucas, who is a careful scientist. He tries to develop techniques for classifying bullets so that people can get a better sense of the probative value of evidence that they find at a crime scene. He's circumspect, he's meticulous, and he tries not to overstate the power of his methods. After all, he developed the methods and knows their limitations. You might say that he knows where the bodies are buried. But then almost immediately, his successors jump at the methods and technology, and they start to make outlandish claims. Perhaps it's because they knew just enough to be dangerous. Perhaps it's because they fell prey to outside pressure. Either way, almost immediately, the technique becomes misused, setting the stage for the problems that we have today. Second, Benjamin's broader thesis about colonialism and why it provides fertile ground for the development of forensic techniques is really interesting to me. Consider the conditions under which criminal investigations occur in a colonial context. You have a distrust of local populations and an inability to make cross-racial identifications. So you have a breakdown of traditional evidence like credibility and eyewitness testimony. All of these problems force British officials in Egypt to find new scientific and what they hope to be more objective methods of investigation and prosecution. As I suggested to Benjamin after our interview, I think you can quickly draw parallels to today's society, which also seems to yearn for greater use of forensic methods. Modern society is characterized by anonymity and multiculturalism, and those attributes perhaps promote greater skepticism about the credibility of witnesses. When the various players in the criminal justice system come from different communities, perhaps there's less trust and therefore a greater desire to find more objective, more scientific methods of proof. Of course, our love for forensics comes from other places. Pop culture, TV shows like CSI, that's another factor. 
Contemporary psychological studies demonstrating the unreliability of credibility assessments and eyewitness identifications, those are another. But I can't help but think that urbanization and the loss of tight-knit communities have something to do with our shift toward the greater use of forensics. I'm really looking forward to Benjamin's book and his future work on the history of American forensics. I'm confident that he will give us some fresh perspectives on the very difficult problem of forensics that we currently have. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. The associate producer is Alex Nunn, and the production editor is Grace DiPietro. Additional production assistance is provided by Francesca Rutherford, and music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join me again next time when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof.